0: To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. What is context, and can we truly understand the Bible without it? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom y'all, this is the Biblically Correct Podcast teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. We hear about it in the news all the time. A politician's quoted as saying something incorrect or offensive. A video captures something blatantly racist or unjust. But only later do we find out that what was reported was just part of what was said or what was seen. When we read more of the interview or watch more of the video and we learn what was said or what happened both immediately before and after what seemed so offensive or unjust, it turns out that those short clips were taken out of context. And seeing them in context with all the surrounding facts and information completely changes how we understand them. Or at least, it should. Whenever we come in in the middle of something, a conversation, a fight, a story, we're missing context, the words or actions that precede or follow whatever it is we're witnessing or trying to understand. Everything we do, see, hear, and say has a context. It has a broader setting than what we're seeing at that moment. And when we ignore or are unaware of that context, pretty much everything can be misconstrued and all the more if we have a predetermined bias or agenda. So just as context is crucial to understanding life, it's also crucial for comprehending God's Word. In fact, it's impossible to fully understand the Bible without it. Today I want to talk to you about context, some of the different kinds of biblical context you need to be aware of, and to show you how easy it is to misunderstand the Scriptures without it. Now we already know that the Bible is a unique book in that it was written over about a 1500 year period by about 40 different authors more than 2000 years ago and each one of those authors were writing at a specific time and place in history to a specific group of people to accomplish a specific purpose. All of that information goes to context. Even with the limited amount of information we have on the biblical authors it at minimum reminds us that we are hardly the primary audience of the Bible. And this is an ancient book. And when we try to impose our modern ideas and sensibilities upon it so as to color the meaning, we're instantly taking it out of context. So the Bible as a whole has an ancient foreign context that we need to keep in mind. Each author also has his own context the time and place in which he lived, the things he was experiencing and going through, and later authors were writing in the context of previous ones. For example, Paul already knew what Moses had written, and so he was able to build upon that body of work, the Torah. This also meant that the Jewish members of Paul's audience would filter what he said through their shared knowledge of Moses. This is what's called frame of reference, Paul, again, for example, when he was writing to Jewish believers, wouldn't have to explain every single thing he referred to. He knew the framework of their knowledge on certain subjects and could then put things into that context without exhaustive explanation. So because the Bible is such an amazingly unified work, despite its diversity of authors, each writer and each book of the Bible needs to be considered in the larger context of all the others. The nature of the Bible itself, as the written word of God, demands it. If we were looking at 40 completely independent, uninspired authors, their agreement or disagreement with one another would be irrelevant. But as books of the Bible, as what we believe to be the finalized communication from God to man in written form, the different parts of the book must be in harmony. Then we have authors like Moses, Paul, John, and Peter, for example, who wrote more than one biblical book. We should expect each author to be internally consistent so that when we read one thing in one of their books, we can look at the same topic in other things they wrote to put what we're reading into that fuller context. This is often not only helpful, but necessary, especially when it comes to Paul. So the Bible as a whole and the individual books of the Bible with their individual authors forms the larger context of the Bible. The more immediate context for anything we read then is going to come from the text that's in closer proximity. In other words, each book of the Bible provides context for each of its chapters, and each chapter provides context for each of its verses. This means that no single verse or phrase or word exists in a vacuum. It has to be considered alongside the words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, and chapters all around it, as well as the author's frame of reference, other things he may have written, who the author was, when and why he was writing, and everything else that the scriptures have to say on the subject. All of it's connected, and none of it can be ignored. Though for the most part, a lot of confusion can be alleviated simply by reading a little bit before and a little bit after what we're trying to understand. Of course, there's no substitute for just being really familiar with the Bible, the whole thing. And that's simply a matter of being dedicated to reading and rereading it as if your life depended upon it, because it does. So now that we know what we mean by context when referring to the Bible, that we have to understand things in relation to their surrounding phrases, sentences, verses, chapters, and books, let's look at some examples of how context can aid in our understanding. We'll start by seeing how the same word can have multiple meanings, and we can determine what that meaning is based on context. Take, for instance, the word heavens, in Hebrew, shemaim, or more precisely, the heavens, or ha and I want to thank my son, Isaac, for giving me this great example. When we think of heaven, it usually with the connotation of being God's abode, the place where he lives, somewhere outside our universe. And we see that understanding clearly in verses like Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 15, which says, Look down, God, from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people, Israel. Now, your English translation may fudge this word, as the ESV does here, by making it the singular heaven, rather than what it is in the Hebrew, which is plural, the heavens. And, right or wrong, they did this based on the context. The passage plainly says that heaven, or the heavens, is God's holy habitation. And so, as a translation choice, they use the singular heaven to convey this meaning since they knew that the heavens can mean different things. And we find one of those other meanings in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where on the sixth day of creation, God is saying to the man he just made, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what's the context here? First, we know that God is speaking during the days of creation concerning all the things that he's made. So God's earthly creation is the broader context that we get from the surrounding verses and all of Genesis chapter 1. We also see that the heavens here contains birds. That's the more immediate context. So unless we're going to ignore the obvious and start speculating about heavenly flying creatures, we can tell from the full context that the heavens here is referring to the sky, the blue part above our heads where the clouds float and the flying things fly. And this is actually how the NAS translates it as the birds of the sky. The NIV here says the birds of the air. So now we have two meanings for the heavens, the place where God lives and the sky. And finally, the third meaning of the heavens is also found during the creation account starting in Genesis 1, 14 through 15, where God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Ah, now that's not quite as clear as the other examples. Let's see if we can figure this out. So based just on the context of these two verses, we can see that there is an expanse in the heavens and that God is putting lights in that expanse, to separate day from night, and that those lights are meant to give light upon the earth. Common sense suggests that if we're talking about a different light for day and night and shining upon the earth, then we're probably talking about the sun and the moon. Now, that's definitely helpful information, but it still doesn't clearly tell us what the heavens is. So let's try to get a little more context. Continuing on in verse 16. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So I'm getting pretty confident now that we're talking about the sun and the moon. But I left off the most important part of the verse for helping us define the heavens because the verse concludes with the phrase and the stars. So now we know based on a larger context that this expanse in the heavens contains the sun, the moon, and the stars. What does this mean? It means that the heavens here is not talking about the place where God lives, and it's not talking about the place where birds fly, but it's talking about the space in between the vast expanse of space where God has placed the stars and planets and celestial bodies that make up the universe. So, the meaning of the heavens based on context can mean either the sky, outer space, or the heavenly abode. Of God. This shows us how context can dramatically change the meaning of a single word. The fact that the same word is used to refer to all three of these places tells us that they must each somehow be related, and they are. They all exist in domains beyond the face of the earth to varying and increasing degrees. But even though they all share that space that goes above our heads, both literally and figuratively, For the sake of our understanding, we can still draw a distinction, and that distinction can be drawn only when we consider the context. Now, I took you through that step by step, even though it was probably pretty obvious to you the whole time what we were reading about. But I wanted to begin to show you the process of how to analyze context by using passages that were relatively easy to understand. Another way that recognizing and knowing the context helps us is that it keeps us from misunderstanding and misusing Scripture because we were looking at it superficially. Let's look at a couple of examples. One very popular verse that I've mentioned before is Jeremiah 29.11, which is used as an encouragement of God's sovereignty and a promise of his prosperity. In the NIV, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope, and a future. So when we encourage ourselves with this, it's because we see ourselves in the verse. It's saying that God has plans for us, will prosper us, and will give us hope and a future. But the immediate context of verse 11 includes the preceding verse, which says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That just completely changes your headspace, doesn't it? Just by backing up a single verse, we see that God is speaking here through Jeremiah to the people of Judah who were about to be exiled to Babylon. This means that verse 11 wasn't originally meant as a universal promise of comfort and hope but a specific promise to Judah that despite her exile, she would one day return to the land. So it's one thing to look at this verse and see God's faithfulness to the Jewish people, and then to encourage ourselves with the fact that God's character is one of faithfulness, perhaps even to the point of counting on him to have a plan laid out for us. But it's another thing to co-opt such a verse for ourselves and falsely hope in something that was never promised to us individually. Based on the context, we can't look at this verse and claim it as our own, forcing God to guarantee something to us that he never promised or agreed to. Another popular verse that's often taken out of context is Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, which says, again, in the NIV, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So this is usually a verse that we encourage ourselves with when we're trying to achieve something that's difficult to do, but feel like giving up. We take the verse to mean that God will help us to succeed and not fail because through him we'll be given the strength to accomplish whatever it is we're striving for. But the immediate context of verse 13 includes the previous verses, 10 through 12, which say, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. That at last you have renewed your concern for me. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. So, based on the context, Paul isn't talking in verse 13 about success and achievements. He's saying that no matter what life throws at him, no matter the circumstances, good or bad, no matter what he has to persevere through, he can be content in all things, and he can operate in either need or plenty, satisfaction or hunger, and everything in between. Because through Messiah, he is given the strength to endure. This is the example that Paul wants his readers to emulate. Again, when we take verses like this out of context, the resulting misapplication endangers our faith because it imposes something on God that he never guarantees for us. So what happens when we believe, based on this verse, that God promises success, but then we fail? Why didn't God give us the results we were expecting? How will this result negatively affect our faith? This is the kind of damage that can be done when we take scriptures out of context. So those are just two examples out of many where a superficial, self-oriented reading of a verse can be easily remedied with a quick look at the surrounding immediate context. Where considering context is not only helpful but absolutely necessary is also for the correction of misunderstanding based on bad doctrine or preconceptions. For example, with regard to Jewish believers like me who continue to identify as Jews while walking daily in Messiah in a way that's somewhat different from Christian norms and expectations, we'll often get pushback from other believers saying that we're going back under the law and that we're re-erecting the middle wall of partition because, as Romans 10.12 says in the ESV, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And Greek in this context can be seen as a stand-in for the word Gentile, that is someone who's not Jewish. So the implication being made here. By the believer objecting to my identity, is that Jews who believe in Jesus are no longer Jews, but Christians, and we need to abandon our legalistic Jewish behavior. So, as it stands, that seems to be a pretty cut and dried piece of scripture. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Therefore, I'm in the wrong for maintaining any kind of distinction. Oh no, what am I going to do? Well, let's see if context can help me out of this jam. First of all, let's look at the entire verse. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So the immediate context is Paul talking about how there is one master over all, the same Lord, from whom all receive his riches. So in context, what it seems to be saying is that There is not one Messiah for Jews and one for Gentiles, but we have the same Messiah, whether we're Jewish or not. This indicates, in contrast with the out-of-context reading, that the lack of distinction between Jews and Gentiles is not because believing Jews are no longer Jews, but because we all share the same Messiah. Therefore, in that sense, there is no distinction. This idea is supported even further when we broaden the context a little bit to include the previous three verses. Let's look at Romans 10:12 again, but this time in context with verses 9-11, through 11, still in the ESV. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So here, Paul is talking about salvation, about confessing Yeshua with our mouth and believing in his resurrection with our heart, so that we will be saved. And then, in support of his own point, Paul quotes Joel when he says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That everyone really puts our trouble verse in context, since Jew and Greek are most assuredly a subset of everyone. So Paul is saying that salvation is available to everyone and then clarifies this concept for his audience. Hey guys, when the scriptures say everyone, they mean everyone that includes you Jews and you Gentiles, even though you're so different. Where salvation is concerned, there is no distinction between you. So looking back a few verses provided us with more context, expanding our understanding of the concept that was barely being introduced in the original verse. Now, that's probably sufficient for overcoming the preconceptions of Romans ten twelve, But for the sake of illustrating the concept of context— let's keep looking around a little. For the sake of time, let me just hit the highlights for you in this next part. Romans 9, 10 through 12 falls in the broader context of chapters 9 through 11, where we see Paul addressing Gentiles about the salvation of Israel, which to Paul is synonymous with the Jewish people. The Gentiles in Rome had apparently been challenging this idea, believing God to have rejected Israel. So, this instruction in Romans ten twelve about distinctions is being given to the Gentile members of paul's audience, and given the context seems to be going toward his eventual point at the end of chapter eleven that all Israel will be saved, that the same Lord that saves Gentiles still saves Jews. Zooming out even further, we can see that the entire book of Romans was written to a mixed audience where paul's addressing Jews at some points and Gentiles at others. And for much of his letter, Paul's dealing with Jewish arrogance toward Gentiles, whereas in chapters 9 through 11, he's addressing Gentile arrogance toward Jews. That's the overarching context of the entire book of Romans. But look at what we find in three different places early in his letter. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Romans 2, 9 through 10 says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Look at what Paul's saying here regarding the gospel and glory, honor, and peace, and even tribulation and distress. Don't forget that part. They all go to the Jew first. Paul's very clearly recognizing that for all these things, both good and bad, the Jew is first in line. Paul spends the rest of Romans unpacking this, showing that despite the advantage that the Jew has in being Jewish, in being a member of God's chosen people, with whom He made his covenant and through whom He brought the Messiah, that despite this advantage, Jews and Gentiles are equal where salvation is concerned. Now this is all crucial to understand, but for the sake of our discussion, let's not lose sight of what we're seeing here. In chapters one and two, Paul is demonstrating a difference between Jews and Gentiles. Jews are first in the areas he mentions. Paul is making a distinction. He even goes on in chapter 3 to further reinforce this idea when he says in verses 1 and 2, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Paul says that the Jewish person, because he is a Jew, because he's a covenantal member of God's people through physical circumcision— has an advantage over other people groups. Not that this is ever cause for boasting. So this means that if Paul recognizes that Jews are different from Gentiles, then the greater context of the whole book of Romans affirms that Romans 10.12 is limited in its meaning of the word distinction. So it does take some work to see the broader context sometimes. While it's often sufficient to just read a little bit before and a little bit after to get a better sense of what's happening, sometimes it can require much more. Now, obviously, on a big topic like this, there are a ton more scriptures that need to be looked at, but I think you get the gist. And of course, my purpose here wasn't to exhaustively examine the subject, but to demonstrate how context affects our understanding. But just for good measure, let's check one more place in Paul, that should shed some light on whether or not it's okay for me to continue to identify as a Messianic Jew. One of the other partial scriptures that's often used to discourage people like me is Galatians 3.28, which says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Again, implying that Jews who believe in Jesus are no longer Jews, but Christians. Now, the objection based on this particular verse is far easier to defeat, relatively speaking. All we have to do is look at the context of the entire verse. In the ESV, it reads, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, if we're looking at this logically, which we should, as long as there remains a distinction between male and female, which there obviously is, then there remains a distinction between Jews and other people groups. But again, that's not even Paul's point. What Paul is saying is that despite our differences as men and women and as Jews and Gentiles, in Messiah, we're all heirs of Abraham according to the promise. So this verse here in Galatians, one of Paul's other writings, further informs and provides context for what he wrote in Romans ten twelve. In Romans, Paul asserts the lack of distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But in Galatians, he implicitly excludes ethnic identity from his definition of distinctions. That leaves us to conclude what all the surrounding context is saying, that despite our inherent distinctions, which includes the unique place of the Jew as a member of God's covenantal people, that we are one in Messiah completely equal in the same master heirs of the same promise saved and blessed by the same yeshua there are so many examples of how context is necessary for understanding the scriptures and so many examples of how we often get it wrong because we take the context for granted i've only scratched the surface here with the examples that i've shown you but hopefully i've gotten across to you how context makes all the difference. And without it, we're only making up the scriptures to say whatever we want them to. As long as we're not taking into account the surrounding words, sentences, verses, chapters, and books of the Bible, as long as we're unaware of the author's intent and original audience, we may as well be pulling it all out of thin air. As I often assert, the Bible is simple to understand. Not necessarily easy or without some work, but simple but it's also easy to misunderstand when we approach the scriptures superficially and take whatever we're reading out of context. The Bible is unique among all books ever written. It's the Word of God encased in the stuff and language of men. Yet it's not a theological textbook with its ideas systematically laid out for us for linear education and consumption. It's elegant, it's profound, But it's also often a big, beautiful mess, because God chose to use normal, messy people like us to put it together, entrusting them with the wisdom and eternal truth of His perfect Word. The nature of the book itself means that it's not beyond our understanding, but it's also not for casual reading. We have to approach the Bible as God intended and consider everything it has to say, not just its pleasant parts. The more you read the Bible from beginning to end, the more natural it'll become to grasp its greater context. Being familiar with what the Scriptures say is the best remedy for all contextual questions. So the next time you get stuck, stick your head up and look around. You won't stay lost in the middle for long, as long as you pay attention to what the Scripture says in context. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Work Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at Kevin at PerfectWord.org. That's Kevin at PerfectWord.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting aright, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.